Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Today's readings come from Daniel 9 and 2 Peter. There's been a bit of a change, so 2 Peter 3, 8, 10 after this. In the first year of Darius, son of Ahasuerus, by birth a Mede, who became king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah, must be fulfilled for the devastation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned to the Lord God to seek an answer by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, Our Lord, great and awesome God, keeping covenant and steadfast love with those who love you and keep your commandments, we have sinned and done wrong, acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Righteousness is on your side, O Lord, but open shame, as at this day, falls on us, the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. Open shame, O Lord, falls on us, our kings, our officials, and our ancestors, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by following his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. So the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against you. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers, by bringing upon us a calamity so great that what has been done against Jerusalem has never before been done under the whole heaven. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. We did not entreat the favour of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and reflecting on his fidelity. So the Lord kept watch over this calamity until he brought it upon us. Indeed, the Lord our God is right in all he has done for we have disobeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made your name renowned even to this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, in view of all your righteous acts, let your anger and wrath, we pray, turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, Because of our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors, Jerusalem and your people have become a disgrace amongst all our neighbours. Now therefore, O our our God, 
Listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication. And for your own sake, Lord, let your face shine upon your desolated sanctuary. Incline your ear, O my God, and hear. Open your eyes and look at our desolation and the city that bears your name. We do not present our supplication before you on the ground of our righteousness, but on the ground of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act, and do not delay. For your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people bear your name. While I was speaking and was praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God on behalf of the holy mountain of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen before in a vision, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He came and said to me, Daniel, I have now come out to give you wisdom and understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, a word went out, and I have come to declare it, for you are greatly beloved. So consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand from the time that the word went out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the time of an anointed prince, there shall be seven weeks. And for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with streets and moat, but in a troubled time. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the troops of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall make sacrifice and offering cease, and in their place shall be an abomination that desolates until the decreed end is poured out upon the desolator. The next reading comes from 2 Peter, chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. But do, but do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you here this morning. My name is Christian. I'm the youth pastor here at Christchurch in West, and I want to extend um, my welcome too, especially to those of you who are new, or perhaps you're visiting for the lovely Susanna's baptism. Uh, whatever the reason, it's great to be with you here this morning. Let's pray together before we open up God's Word. Lord, we, we pray, prepare our hearts and our minds 
to receive your word, to hold on to it as more precious than anything else so that it will change us and grow us and open our eyes to see you more and more clearly. Help me, Lord, to step out of the way and to put you forward. May your spirit be at work in all of us, we pray. Amen. Uh, some of you may have heard of the book, The Hiding Place. Um, it's a true story of someone named Corey Ten Boom. Um, and it's about the author. She depicts her life in a ravenous time of World War II, of which the Jewish people in Europe found themselves. Perhaps the very epitome of living through hell on earth. The story centers around Corey, as well as her family, who end up, in a sense, being smugglers for God. Through his guidance, through prayer, and through nothing short of miracles, the family helped counter the evil of the Nazis and save lives of many, many people. If you haven't read it, I, I highly recommend it. Again, that's the hiding place. Now, in the early chapters of the book, Corey recalls a time when she, as a young girl, she's returning on home, um, sorry, returning home on the train with her father after accompanying him um, to purchase large amounts of watchmaking parts for his business. And she asked him to explain how children are conceived. And her father stood up and took the suitcase he'd brought along. And it reads like this. Will you carry it off the train, Corey? He asked. I stood up and tugged at it. It was crammed with watches and spare parts he'd purchased that morning. It's too heavy, I said. Yes, he said. And it would be a pretty poor father who would ask his little girl to carry such a load. It's the same way, Corey, with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you are older and stronger, you can bear it. For now, you must trust me to carry it for you. Many times in our own lives, we do not know how God possibly is at work. Sometimes we don't even know why God allows certain things or disallows other things. Sometimes... We don't know how God is going to bring about what he promises. We look around and what our eyes currently see seems much more convincing of a future that reflects something entirely different to what God has promised us. Sometimes our feelings try and triumph the truths that we know about God. But sometimes God's plans are not a code to be deciphered, but rather a plan to be trusted. And so it is with Daniel and the Israelites. Daniel, we heard, is reading from the book of Jeremiah, and he perceives that the time is near for which God will bring the Israelites out of Babylon and into the promised land. God has a plan. He has a promise. And despite the fog that sits over Israel in their oppression within Babylon, God's plan is to be trusted and not deciphered. So let's look at this plan together. So he's reading from Jeremiah. I think, hopefully, there's a slide on Jeremiah 29. Nope, that's okay. I'm going to read it. If you have your Bibles open, I'll give you a quick few seconds to turn to Jeremiah 29, chapter, uh, sorry, chapter 29, verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I'll come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. 
Then you will call on me and come and pray, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Just as prophesied, Israel find themselves in captivity in Babylon. God has brought judgment upon them because time and time and time again the Israelites have turned away from God and instead turned towards idols. Their hearts have become blackened by their sin and corruption and each time God would beckon them to return to him to be faithful to the covenant that they had made, they would once again turn their backs on him, adopt ungodly practices and beliefs and abandon the one true God for evil things. And so eventually, God delivers them into the hands of the Babylonians. And this prophecy, where the Israelites currently find themselves, but Daniel also recognizes the promise God has given to them. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I'll come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And so, surely Daniel, realizing that the time of deliverance was near, must have looked around at the strength of the Babylonian army and empire and the state of the weak and oppressed Israelites. And no doubt, asked himself, how on earth are we going to go from this mess into freedom? In fact, that's basically what he says in verse 3. Then I, Daniel, turned to the Lord God to seek an answer by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Before exile, God had said to his people, trust me and follow my lead. During their judgment, God says to his people, trust me, I'm going to use this to turn your hearts back to me. And now, as God's promised to bring his people out of Babylon and into the promised land, as the time draws near and the mist of the conquering empire seems thicker than ever, again God says, trust me. And so this morning we're going to look at Daniel in just two parts. Daniel's prayer and Daniel's appeal. Now, I reckon Daniel would be feeling pretty beat by this point. He's been through quite a lot, as we know. He's been appointed by an enemy king to be at his service, to be the interpreter of his dreams, He's been thrown into the den of lions for refusing to worship the king and instead pray to his own God. He's had visions of beasts and rams and goats and all sorts of weird things. And in just the chapter before, his body finally gives way and he finds himself sick in bed. He's overwhelmed and he's overcome by such intense revelations. And now, as he gets back up, continues to get on with life and work, studying the Bible in his free time, and now he's reading Jeremiah and realizes God's promise of deliverance is just around the corner. And so he prays. Ah, Lord, great and awesome God, keeping covenant and steadfast love with those who love you and keeping your commandments, we have sinned and done wrong, acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Personally, I just I love the way he opens his prayer. Great and awesome God. 
I wish I were a bit more intentional in addressing God this way. I often pray too casually, or I don't know if you've had this experience, but you fell asleep while praying in bed. But Daniel gets who he's speaking to. God Almighty, he prays. What an absolute fitting and appropriate opening for a prayer to the God of all the galaxies. Great and awesome. Now, I don't think our English language doesn't do much um, favor here or quite capture Daniel's intentions with these words. Um, Some of your teenagers here this morning might use these words of great and awesome to describe the sleepover they had with their friends or the feeling they have when they were given the school holidays without homework. Or maybe for you, when you get a paid day off because it's a public holiday, great and awesome. But our typical words of this don't do justice to what Daniel is saying here. Awesome more literally means causing or inducing awe, inspiring an overwhelming feeling of reverence, admiration, or fear. In praying to the God of the universe, Daniel is in awe, recognizing God's greatness. He's captivated by who God is. His very nature evokes feelings of preeminence, greatness, and superiority. And to this great, awesome God flows some of the most real, sincere, and beautiful words of confession. Daniel's prayer is a wholehearted admission of his sin and not tainted or watered down. There is no minimizing here nor excuses, just simple, open confession. We have sinned and done wrong, acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. You have driven us into many lands because of the treachery that we have committed against you. All Israel have transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. Indeed, the Lord our God is right in all that he has done, for we have disobeyed his voice. You see, the root of the issue here is not that God is being too strict or reactive in what he has brought on Israel. It's not that God had a fine print in the clause, in the contract, that Israel technically disobeyed, And now God is responding legalistically and coming down hard on them. It's not even that their sin has violated the covenant altogether, although that is also true. The root of the issue here is that Israel have completely turned their backs on God. They've rejected him. They've denied his kingship and violated the relationship. From the very beginning, we know that God has loved them. He's led them and lavished his goodness on them. But they had time and time again rejected him, again and again. And the repeated disobedience has now not only demonstrated their disloyalty, but displayed their lack of love for him. For if they had truly loved God, just as he has loved them, they would have obeyed him. Is that not the same for us? For Jesus says, if you love him, you will keep his commandments. To completely turn their backs on that, to completely step in the opposing direction is to dismiss the covenant and show that there is an absence of love for that person. The covenant was supposed to be love and loyalty put into action, just like for marriage. To enter that covenant and stay committed to those vows indicates the nature of our love. But love without obedience is just empty words and a corrupt covenant. Yet, yet, despite all this, although Israel is unfaithful, God remains with them. God continues to walk by them. 
And God uses the 70 years of judgment to turn their hearts back to him. He has not abandoned them. And because Daniel gets this, he's quick to pray. And so he has confessed. Daniel recognizes there's no need, nor any point, in shying away or shifting the blame. For God has been and will be totally faithful to his people. Mercy and restoration are at the heart of the God who Israel follow. And so Daniel prays with total admission of the guilt of him and his people. It is the forgiveness and faithfulness of God that leads Daniel to be able to pour his heart back to God in total admission. For he cannot earn his forgiveness, nor do something to deserve the grace. Neither can he do anything to unearn it. And so he prays a confident prayer of confession, not withhold in anything, but rather pouring his whole heart to God. Daniel, we see, is not confessing so that God will restore him or them, the Israelites. He's not confessing so that God would do as he has promised. Daniel is confessing because God is about to restore them, because God will do as he promised. The faithfulness of God is what leads Daniel to pray on behalf of all of Israel. This prayer is a prayer of preparation for the heart of God's people to receive the promise of restoration and deliverance. And each service, in fact, after this, we confess our sins. We've already been saved by grace. Sin no longer condemns us, yet we still confess each week. We confess not to earn our salvation, but because we know that God has been and is faithful to us. And so we pray and we prepare our hearts before God to have our minds and our lives shaped by him. And so, despite their rebellion, despite the judgment that they've been through, despite the adultery they've committed against God with other gods, the true God has not abandoned his people. He remains faithful and does not forget his promise. And Daniel knows this, and so he confesses, Ah, great and awesome God. I imagine um, you may have had a feeling as a child, or if you want to admit along with me, maybe as an adult, where you're just so excited to see someone who's about to come over, um, that as the time draws near, you sort of float around the front door and maybe peek out onto the street every now and then to see if their car has pulled up waiting for the doorbell to ring so you can just greet that person as soon as they approach the door. Well, I sort of get this image like that when I read how God responds to Daniel's prayer. We hear that God delights in this prayer, just as he delights in the prayer of all his people. So much so that when Gabriel or the angel appears, one of the first things he says is, at the beginning of your supplication, a word went out, and I've come to declare it. For you are greatly beloved. God has um, such a love for his people, such care and delight in them to provide and rescue and just to hear from them that he basically responds instantly when Daniel brings his words to him. And the reason for this, you are greatly beloved. I can only imagine how different our lives would be if we reminded each other more and more and more that we are greatly loved. You are greatly loved by your friends, 
your family, your church, brothers and sisters, but most of all, you are greatly known and loved by the very creator himself, the one true God. So whether discipline or judgment, obedience or failure, a boulder of faith or a mustard seed, friend, if you trust in God, you are greatly loved. And so confess your sins, pray God's promises to him, speak your feelings, emotions, hurts, failures, fears to God, prepare your hearts for you are greatly loved. As a groom prepares himself before a wedding, a mother prepares herself before birth, a child prepares themselves to receive a gift on Christmas morning, so Daniel confesses and prepares to receive God's promise of love. Point two, Daniel's appeal. If I were a hiring businessman, firstly, I'd be terrible, but secondly, I reckon I could do far worse than hiring someone like Daniel. No matter the field, really, that I was hiring in, I, I suspect he would succeed in today's society as well as he did back then, and I suspect the key part of that would be his prayer life. Daniel's resume before the king was impressive. His wisdom saw him rise up the ranks among a otherwise hostile foreign empire. He won over the king with the, his conduct and character and was successful in a society that was really antagonistic and enemies to him. And Daniel's spiritual resume? Even more remarkable. His faith had sustained him through an eat-off against the Babylonian guards, prepared him to be eaten and alive by lions, and now praying on behalf of his nation a prayer of confession. And yet, despite all this, in no way, shape, or form is the basis of his appeal before God based on him and what he has done. There's no action, no decree, no display of any faithfulness, no matter how rich or deep. Daniel seeks God's mercy because of God. It was entirely on who God is, righteous, merciful, possessor of forgiveness. Verse 9, to the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness. O Lord, in the view of all your righteous acts, let your anger and wrath, we pray, turn away from your city, Jerusalem. We do not present our supplications before you on the ground of our righteousness, but on the ground of your great mercies. God will deliver his people. He will forgive them of their transgression, not because of what they have done, not because of who they are, not because he does not delight in righteousness, but because of what God has done, because of who he is, and because he does delight in his righteousness, and he has poured that over his people to cover them. All of God's patience, even his judgment, and now his deliverance, it all centers around his mercy and his righteousness to turn his people back to him. And Daniel appeals on this, on God's faithfulness to his people. God's promises of mercy to Daniel and Israel, Israel, as well as to us, are sure and true. They triumph with wrath. They triumph our feelings. They triumph our disloyalty. And they even triumph judgment.
This is one of the many reasons, actually, that we would do a lot of good to continue to read and know of God's promises that we find in His Word and to store them into our hearts, to bring them into our consciousness, to meditate on them. Because when our feelings of, or circumstances try to persuade us otherwise, try to persuade us to despair, try to make us feel like they are not true of what God has said, God's promises are more true and more sure, and they are His foundation. His character is immovable, certain and boundless in His grace. This appeal of Daniel, this appeal, does it sound familiar to you? Because it should. This is the cross which we find ourselves cleansed by, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the man and God to whom we appeal for our own righteousness. For we do not dare to come before him in prayer on our own merit, for we would be just like Isaiah who cried, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. Instead, we appeal to God through the mercy of Jesus Christ that he has lavished upon us. We appeal for what he has done for us. We appeal to his promise of salvation. And so neither Daniel, nor you, nor I should ever appeal to God with anything beginning with I. Because I believed. Because I served you in ministry. Because I was prepared to be eaten by lions for you. Because I was a good mom. Because I had faith. Because I, because I, because I. Friends, the only proper answer here is in the third person, because he, because he. And what Daniel is told in the prophecy that follows his prayer is of a future because he will. We now see this prophecy in the present because he has, because Jesus has put an end to transgression, because he has put an end to sin. Because he has atoned for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness. Because he has sealed both vision and prophet and anointed a most holy place. Friends, make your confessions. Prepare every corner of your heart. Turn every page of your soul to him in love, acceptance and thankfulness to the awesome God of boundless love and unimaginable mercy. Because the sinless Saviour died, my soul, my sinful soul is counter-free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Let's pray. Father of unboundless unimaginable, never-ending mercy. We lift our hearts to you. We pray that you would help us. Help us, Lord, to accept your love and forgiveness and grace, to not rely on ourselves, but to know and take comfort and be confident in what Jesus has done for us, to respond in love to him, the love that you have lavished on us. For your mercy never ends, your forgiveness has no limit. Lord, help us to believe and know this and trust in this, we pray. Amen.
we're going to continue now in compression.